Hey everyone and welcome to Radically Normal. This is Michael and I'm here with Andre. On this episode in Nehemiah chapter 9, titled Living on a Prayer, we talk about Israel's confession of their sin and the history of Israel. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome to Radically Normal, everybody. I'm here with Mike and we're going to be diving into Nehemiah chapter 9 today. It will just be only Nehemiah chapter 9, so there's going to be no commercial breaks this time. We won't be talking about coffee creamers or anything like that, but we got some feedback over the past uh, month or so saying that they wanted to hear an episode of Mike and I going in with no prep, just seeing how it goes, and this is going to be Mike and I doing that. Mike does not know that we were going to be doing that. This is the first time he's hearing about it, but we did not prep for this episode. Um, We basically have no idea what either one of us is going to say, and we're going to see how that goes. Okay. That's... uh, uh I did not know about that up front, to be honest, so I am putting away what I usually use for Nehemiah and just opening up a blank Bible. And no, we're no, just you, gonna... can, you can have your notes. We're just going to have no prep. So basically, we're just going to we're gonna go through it how we normally do, but we have, we have no prep, basically, of us discussing our points is basically what we're going to try to do. Okay, that sounds good. If you're diving into this episode and you've been following along so far, one thing I will say with Chapter 9, it's kind of like reading... Something like Acts 7 where Stephen gives basically like a biblical theology of the whole Old Testament in a sense. This is a this is somewhere where you might want to like make notes about certain portions and like where they fit into the story or just kind of be able to think about where say Abraham fits into the story or Joshua or any of that that sort of thing. Because as the people confess their sin, they really walk through basically the entire story of Israel, which I find really exciting. So in the last chapter, or the last episode, when we were in Nehemiah, we talked a lot about how it was not the time to lament. Instead, they had to celebrate with joy. And now we see them turn to their original uh, emotion at hearing the law, which is weeping and confession. So let's just jump right into chapter 9. First thing, I don't know if you have any points about this, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you have something about the 24th day of this month because... You typically have a little tidbit about when it says seventh month or tenth day or whatever. So do you have anything on that? So it's likely that it's because it doesn't say anything otherwise. I'm just going to take a guess saying that it's the same month from the previous chapter when they'd been celebrating the feast because now they're going to confess their sins. Uh, One thing to note as we begin the chapter, just like the last time where it's kind of confusing how this fits into the story, it's kind of confusing how It's the same month, and it's um, a day of fasting and confession, but chapter 8 commands for a feast of joy. However, their sins were not yet atoned for, and it wouldn't be out of place to go back to thinking of sin after a joyful feast. So that's kind of the context in which we get into the first few verses. And it's it's really interesting. Okay, verse 3 says that they stood up. We see them stand up again. And that's just like really cool to me how every single time that they're about to read, God's word, they stand. And like you said, Russell Moore, we talked about this last time, he has people stand. And maybe that's like a practice that has kind of been like lost along the way. But it does make you like stand in in reverence to God's word and what's there and that it is his words. He inspired these words. And now you're trying to like learn from it and just standing in awe. Yeah. One thing that I want to say, though, with that is we're not saying that it's prescriptive or commanded by the Bible to do. Nobody has to do it. And it doesn't it doesn't you know, make you holier than thou if you do do it. 
it's just a practice that some people do nowadays and that they definitely did this time with reading the law. One thing that I think is interesting though, and I'll just read verse two for the people driving or mowing the lawn. It says, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. I think this is really cool because they have a more corporate view of their sin than we usually have. We think, oh, if I sin, it only affects me. It doesn't It doesn't affect the people around me. But if we just think about the story of the Old Testament, the sins of Jeroboam, the, the evil king, defined future generations of kings as um, they continued ruling sinfully. If we think of Achan or Achan in Joshua 7, he takes those war spoils and hides them. But then God punishes his entire household. So we need, I think one thing to take away here is just as they confess as a group, that's something that kind of gets lost in us today. And this corporate idea of sin affecting the community and the fathers that they're looking back to the past with, sin does affect the people around us, even if it feels like a secret to us. And I mean, I guess, like you said about verse three, like we by no means are saying that that's something you have to do. And then my point about verse two is basically... Well, like you said, um, having effects on other people, what I saw from that too was nowadays you have a sin and it is going to affect like family members, friends. And that's why some, it's like good to have like something we've talked about in previous episodes, accountability, that kind of thing is something that I pulled from this is everyone's kind of just saying what their sins are. They feel bad about it. We've seen Nehemiah feel bad about the sins of, of, of his people. All that stuff is going on. So like I, I agree with like what, what you were saying about that. Yeah, and then this kind of continues the pattern from chapter 8. We said they stood up, but then they they read from the law for a quarter of the day, and then for another quarter they made confession and worshiped. So this kind of this kind of almost reminds me of like going to a church conference. You are there all day long worshiping, hearing the scripture preached uh, and Christ glorified. But this is just so cool to me. Like they are gathering for this whole time, for this feast, this festival, uh, now for this. And they are worshiping and reading and learning for like half the day. I think that is incredible. Dude, this might just be funny to us too. It's going to be really out of context, but it kind of reminds me of Alan's church. They're just there all day. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just found that funny a little bit. But yeah, I think it was just, it's cool that they, they are, they're using confession and reading God's word as a form of worship. It's not something that I usually think about. I usually think about, Worship is when we sing. We all stand, we sing, we worship God in that way. But also, they're talking about confession as well as reading God's word. They did this for basically half the day. And this is how they're worshiping the Lord. And we go on and something I saw was the next part is in quotations. So this is either like a prayer or a song or a hymn or something, but it goes on for pages. So they really are worshiping the Lord and like they're they're giving it their all here. It's definitely a prayer of confession, but... I did also read something that it could have been a hymn. And if you are a big psalm reader, this prayer is actually really similar to Psalms 105 and 106, where they, the psalmist walks through the story of Israel and the sin of people in rebellion against God who's faithful to his covenant. So two emphases here, the sinfulness of man and the faithfulness of God in the covenant. So let's get in here. Uh, chapter chapter 9, verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. This starting off just thinking about God as creator and all of his splendor and majesty reminds me of 
um, a spiritual mentor I have, he he's talked before about how he usually starts off any of his prayers just thinking about who God is and adoring God, thinking about uh, God's nature before he begins to pray about anything else. And now that's how I pray. And that really shapes the rest of my prayer just to refocus in on, despite the busyness of daily life, just on who God is so that I can reshape my own heart around who I'm praying to. So I really like that. And I guess that's not something that I do, but I definitely see the the value in that because, I don't know, just as we keep reading verse 6, it's, it talks about God in in light of him being the creator. And that's I think that's really cool because just remembering, having awe of God and who he is, his character. His character is something that we've spent a lot of time talking about. We talked about the jealousy of God, understanding his character, how we fit into his character. We were made in his image. Just that awe of God and his love for us, his grace, him being creator. That's something like very, very good. Yeah, so he says... You made the heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, could be the angels or the stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. This is Genesis chapter 1 in one verse. You preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. That's definitely the angels. Then it really gets into switches from just who God is and in a big picture what he's created and sustained and then narrows down to you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. So it jumps straight into around Genesis 11, 12, and in those teens chapters of Genesis, you chose Abram. So we see the election of Abraham by God's grace. Abraham was not perfect, but God chose him by grace. And Abraham, as a result, walked in faithfulness to God. So this is Genesis 12 through 17 as he initiates the covenant and offers the promised land. So this is him just beginning the covenantal talk with Abraham. And then bringing up the covenant, this is also really cool, at least for me, because something I've told you in the past couple of weeks is that I've just been like having desire to understand the Old Testament and how that fits into not just the stories that are typically talked about, but like just overall what happened, why it's significant, what Israelites went through, all of that kind of stuff. And right here, they're basically giving an account of all of that. And they're basically right here, they're talking about God's covenant with Abraham. And then they're going to keep talking about a bunch of other stuff. And they're basically going to give a little bit, a little synopsis of everything that happened, their history, before they kind of make a new commitment to God to live the way how he wants them to live. Because as we talked about in the last episode, their spiritual life was a little bit broken to what it should have been. And they're starting to do the Feast of Booths again. They're trying to reform their spiritual their spirituality and how they're living their lives. Yes. So as we get into the prayer again, just like Andre said, it fits into and depicts this beautiful unfolding plan of redemption that God initiates and promises and fulfills by grace. And we see that all the more in Christ. I don't know if anyone else kind of likes having a big layout. If you want to write this down, I'll go a little bit slow. But here's kind of the composition of the prayer. In verse 6, we see the praise of God as creator. Verses 7 through 8 is the covenant with Abraham. 9 through 11 are God's works in Egypt. 12 is God cares for them in the desert. 13 through 21 is Mount Sinai and the wandering of God's people. 22 through 25 is the conquering of the land, thinking of Joshua. And 26 through 31 is their unfaithfulness and God's patience. And 32 through 37 is just complete, utter confession of sin. 
So that's kind of the overview. And now we're really going to get more into the muck and the mire and like we did with Abraham. Yeah, let me add one thing. Uh, the, the section from 22 to 25, I believe, it also is it also highlights the fulfilling of, of God's uh, promises, which is also really cool. And I wanted to say one thing is I've been listening to the, the Bible Project videos. And I know it's like one th- you, like you recommended to me. We've talked about it in previous episodes, but that's like really cool. And it kind of gives like, this background a little bit, just piece by piece. It gave me a lot of context for this. And it was very useful, I would say. Yeah, hopefully you have time for both of us. If you can only pick one, you should definitely pick them. But the Bible Project has amazing resources. They don't just have videos on every book of the Bible and certain topics in the Bible, like the kingdom of God or the image of God, but they also have a podcast where they release one episode weekly on anything, the epistles, Gospel of Luke, the theme of exile in the Bible, and they do several episodes on one given topic, one episode per week. It is a really good resource to help you learn the Bible. So we highly recommend. I didn't even know they had a podcast. I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, it's fantastic. As Andre and I began to study for Nehemiah, I listened to their mini series on the podcast about the theme of exile, just as a refresher and to think more about how the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the stories with Nebuchadnezzar, all of those fit into this story. So yeah, they have a lot of good things, a great podcast, great conversation. And so we just talked about Abraham, and now we can keep going. I don't know if you have anything before that, but so it says it said in verse 8, like you said about made the covenant with him, gave him the land. Now in verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. So now we're getting into the story of Exodus, and he talks about in verse 10, performing signs and wonders. Wait, wait, at- Mike, wait, wait, we're not recording. You're just messing with me. I'm just messing with you. Yeah. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, he thinks he's good, but nah, there's no way. <laughs> Verse 10, perform signs and wonders against Pharaoh. So here we see things about the plagues and the signs, and we know the reason for those signs and plagues was so that God could demonstrate to Pharaoh and all the world his power and majesty and his ability to deliver his people and call them back into the covenant story that he promised Abraham and we will see further in the law, the tabernacle, the temple, and the promised land. And there's a lot of talk of Moses in this whole part from like 9 to 15. And on from there, it talks a lot about Moses and how they still look back to all the things that happened through Moses. And they still are in reverence of that. They still respect Moses. And they still look up to everything that Moses did. From leading them out of Egypt, the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, giving them the law, all those things. Moses is still a very important leader to them. Yes, and it's not just that Moses is an important leader to these people because they were banished and all that. Moses is always important to the faith of Israel. So if you even think about the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees in the New Testament in the gospel accounts, You see Jesus talking in John 5, John 6, John 7 about Moses and Jesus basically saying, I am the one that Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 18 when he, when God promised a prophet greater than Moses. And he's saying, God gave you through Moses, the manna from heaven in the desert. I'm the bread of eternal life. Come to me and you'll never hunger. So Moses is super important and Jesus makes a lot of appeals about his divinity and his messiahship by referring to to Moses. And in these verses about Moses, we see in verse 12, him talking about the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. So there we see presence. Um, and now today we have the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 13, we think we see a lot about laws and provision of the word. That was the law. Now we have 
the entire scripture. So just like they're talking about the importance of presence and law, we have the importance of the spirit and the word. And when you see right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments in verse 13, that's the entire set of legal terminology that's also used back in the book of Deuteronomy. I don't know if that's interesting to me because I'm going to law school, but I thought that was interesting. And I think the really cool thing about this is that all of this, as some of the things you're just saying, it kind of, it all points to Jesus. It points to Jesus as being the fulfillment of promises of covenant, of him being the fulfillment of being the lamb who is going to like save us from our sins. It's, it is all of that throughout the whole entire Old Testament, all points to Jesus. It all points to Jesus. That's an amazing point. If you are going through the Old Testament and you're not searching for Jesus, using resources to see Jesus, see how the whole story is pointing to the covenant fulfillment in Jesus, then start doing it right now because it is incredible. This whole searching the scriptures for Christ is what Jesus was talking about again in John 5 and into John 6 about you search the scriptures and you think they have eternal life, but eternal life is found in me. So it's not that the scripture is doing something on its own. It's that the scripture is pointing to Christ. And the other thing that's, I think, really interesting about the Old Testament is, at least personally, when I think about the state of the church or the state of believers today, a lot of times I think of it in terms of the New Testament, New Testament Christians, uh, the works of Paul and stuff like that. But also we can find a lot of ways how we are a lot like God's people in the Old Testament. Specifically, it says, if you look farther down, uh, we can go back if you have any points that I miss, but in verse 17, it says, But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and do not forsake them. That shows how great God is, but it says at the beginning of verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. So it shows the condition that God is great. God is gracious, merciful. He's good. We mess up. He's good again, and then we still mess up. He tries to give us a path to get back to him, and we end up messing it up. And thinking of ourselves in terms of how people were living um, in the Old Testament, lots of sins that are recurring in today's day and age, sexual sin, not having other things that we value above God, things of that nature are things that are affecting us like today. And it's interesting to think of ourselves from that perspective and not just from a New Testament perspective. For sure. So, just just to identify ourselves in a sense with verse 16 and 17 where Andre was, talks about the disobedience of the people. It's easy to look back and look at the Israelites in the Old Testament or the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the New Testament and say, dang, they were crazy, wicked. The Messiah was in front of them. They had God's law, a cloud and a fire. We would not have disobeyed. But we are the same way. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the opportunity of Christ, not where he says, come and fulfill a bunch of rules and then you can be in my presence. He says, just come in belief so that you will never hunger and never thirst. So again, we have to return to the fact that like verse 17 says, and Andre already quoted, God is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. I just I just think that's, that's really great. There's just something to remember to meditate on and just to like keep in mind that we we are we are broken we are sinners and we need god and we need to remember our history remember like where we came from and like look at it from that lens as well as these people are doing yes reflecting on the fulfillment 
of God to his covenant promises and how we as the people of God, remember this is our story, have been disobedient and God has still been faithful. That allows us to step in with confidence to the world today, knowing God is still working for his glory and our joy, as we talked about in the jealousy episode. And so in verse 16 and 17, it says, but they and our fathers, this but, you know, if you've studied English, we have some sort of contrast and probably maybe some sort of change in view, maybe from positive to negative, negative to positive. This is where the bad news came in about their disobedience. And we have to remember the bad news is always about us. And the good news is always about God. God is faithful. And even we, his chosen people are sometimes not. So if we keep going, we have the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, verse 19 and 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. This prayer just makes you so thankful for God's mercy and presence and how we don't have the fire or cloud anymore, but we have something way better. The helper, the paraclete, as the Greek, I think, terms it in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises in John chapter 7. And then we get to the part about, like you said, he's talking about the fulfillment of his promises about multiplying the children like the stars of heaven. And so basically it gives... It gives another, this is a new breakdown from 22 to 25 of the next part of their history. Yeah, so ch- verse 23, you, like Andre said, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. So we don't behold the stars a lot because you either A, live in an urban space and you don't see the stars that often. True. Or B, you just don't spend a lot of time in nature and you just don't see the stars. This was a powerful metaphor for people without electricity and who could see the magnificent stars every night. But the language there is even more than that. It's referring back to Genesis 15, 5, where God promises to Abraham that they are going to multiply greatly. So he says in verse 5, God brought him outside and said, this is in Genesis 15. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the promise to Abraham fulfilled. And that's that's really great because as we look into Old and New Testament, there are many promises that we can hold to pray about that just think these are promises. God fills his promises. These promises apply to us. That's really amazing. It is. What's interesting though is you see talk about Moses, you see talk about Abraham, you see you see those clear names listed. And then we get to verse 24, the next verse, the descendants went in and possessed the land and you subdued them. So they're now talking about the book of Joshua where they go in, think of the battle of Jericho, trumpets, going around the wall seven days, the wall falls, all that story. All about Joshua, but there's no mention. There's I have no idea for if there's a reason for that. It's just kind of interesting that they had been mentioning names and Joshua, who had led them into this promised land, is not mentioned. Yeah, by this time, by this point, I was trying to match up what book of the Bible they were talking about, which is really interesting. As I was researching that, looking at this, and it's you can kind of like see that clear progression. It's like even though they don't mention it, I feel like the people who were there would have definitely known because it was their immediate history. It's not our immediate history. But they definitely spent a lot of time thinking about Moses, what happened with Abraham, what happened with Joshua, that, that kind of thing. This is like their like immediate ancestors. This is like the stories that their parents tell them, that their spiritual leaders tell them. So despite us having to like do a little bit of digging, oh, like what, what's, what's going on here? What part is this? They know, you know, and whenever they say this, it's bright lights. They know exactly what's going on. They know exactly what happened. 
They know what mistakes were made, um, what God did, and they're just in remembrance of that. Yeah, so this, like Andre said, these are the stories. If you watch The Chosen, the TV show we've mentioned before, um, you see the people in Israel, the Jewish people, just talking about their story, talking about God's faithfulness to Israel. Obviously, some of the story isn't direct, but that was the Israelite Jewish culture. And then what's interesting in verse 25, this is just kind of funny to me. I was reading the last uh, sentence in verse 25. It says, so they ate and were filled and became fat. Man, I just read that and started dying. Uh, upon further digging, though, the became fat in the Hebrew could also mean to become rich. So either oh, way, I, I, thought okay. that, I thought that was kind of funny. I guess the the, the fat rich king uh, <laughs> look. <laughs> right, let's keep going into the next section, starting at verse 26. Um, basically, it says they rebelled against God again. Um, they turned their back on him. They killed his prophets. And so, like, what do you see here? Yeah, so this is the killing of the prophets. So if you go and you read um, 1 Kings 18 and 19, you'll see this. Or 2 Chronicles 24, we see in verse 21. I'm just going to read it here. They conspired against him, and by the command of the king, they they stoned Zechariah with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. So this is them killing the prophets who had spoken a faithful word. They killed the prophets of God. And it's interesting to see how Jesus addresses this topic with the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you build the prophets' tombs and celebrate those righteous people, but you're the sons of those uh, who murdered them. You say that if you lived back in their day, you wouldn't have killed them. But you're doing the same thing right now. You're going to crucify me, and I'm one of those prophets of God speaking the truth to you, and you're still killing those prophets. Wait, where, where is that again? That's Matthew 23. It's in the uh, it's in the middle to end section 29 uh, verses 29 through 36. He's saying, "You celebrate those prophets who Israel murdered when they were speaking the truth, but you're doing the same thing today." So, I guess th- that kind of goes back to the fact that I guess the same how we think, "Oh yeah, if we were in the time of Moses and we saw the burning bush and, and the cloud of smoke and the fire and all that, oh yeah, there's no way that we would have done what they did. We wouldn't have of done all those things seeing those miracles or even oh if we were in the time of jesus and saw all the miracles we wouldn't we wouldn't do that but even jesus is saying himself you say that but you would have because you're doing it now and like the same thing applies to us it does apply to us it's really good so if you want to read more about killing the prophets first kings 18 and 19 second chronicles 24 that's the zechariah one i think jesus mentions his name but i'm i'm not positive about that but he does say, you know, you're building their tombs. You celebrate them, but you you would have done the same thing, and you're doing it today. So then we continue. Verse 27 talks about you gave, they say to God, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. And this actually says saviors little s. So I was kind of like, oh, they don't know that they have a savior, capital S, who's going to save us in mercy. And that is true. What's also true, though, is that the saviors here is probably referring to judges. So if you read in Judges 2 or 3, it talks about um, them delivering uh, them from the hand of their enemies. But judges was a bad time for the people of Israel. They didn't have a king. And it, it really the theme to me in Judges is they did what was good in their own sight. And it displeased the Lord. They didn't walk in obedience. So God is faithful. The people turned to other idols. That is a common story. And in Judges, there was a lot of leaders who came in and tried to correct things. Didn't do it the way how God wanted them to do it. And then 
a lot of bad consequences happen because of it, and it's basically just an account of that. Yeah, it is. So Judges comes right after Joshua. They're continuing to walk through this Old Testament story. Obviously, um, the idea of canon or scrolls or books look different then, so they're not trying to walk through every book. They're more walking through this entire story. And then we see here in verses 28, 29, similar uh, motif or pattern of disobedience in God's faithfulness. Then it says, you sinned against the rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. And this is the same theme in Leviticus 18 when he says, if you obey the law, you will live by them. So this is the importance of the law amongst the people. And do you have anything else before the last section here, starting at verse 32? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. So we're thinking about uh, Joshua judges. It's really odd that the chronicler, if that's who's including these things, or if it's just this is like the exact words of the prayer. It's really interesting that David and the Davidic covenant are not mentioned. So you don't, you see a lot about Joshua judges. We don't see anything about David and the covenant made in second Samuel seven. I just find that really interesting because that's a big stepping stone on the way to understanding God's covenant. So I was just kind of curious about why that's not there. But yeah, then that's interesting. But before we get to verse 31, it says in your great mercies, you didn't make an end of them. This is, what happens now, what happened in the New Testament, what happened when they went to exile. That God may give us over to defeat or exile, but he never abandons his promises and he will fulfill them consistent with his word. Yeah, and that happens all the way back to the time of Moses when they messed up. They made the golden calf. God's ready to punish them. Moses is like, remember your covenant, remember your promises, and then God does. And while he has to, he has to teach them a lesson, he makes them, he has them uh, be wandering through the desert, right? But he never like loses sight of his of his promises to his people, and he always comes through with them. Yeah, he does. He always comes through with them, and this is what they acknowledge in the next verse in thirty two, and they say, "Our God, the Great, the Mighty, the Awesome, who keeps covenant, steadfast love." It's clear they don't fault God for their troubles. They recognize the wickedness of their hearts, and that's why they're here to repent. You have dealt faithfully; we have acted wickedly. There are the last words in verse thirty three. <laughs> And that's interesting because they're admitting that they're making the same mistakes as their ancestors. That they're like, we're here, we made the same mistakes. And then we're going to see them try to make a new commitment to the Lord that they want to do the right thing again. Right. In verse 35, they talk about all the blessing and the provision and the upright law. This fits in with what David is saying in Psalm 16. Your rules, your word has fallen in good places for me. But they still turned to sin and then in verse 36, it's interesting because now they're not just talking about the past and their sin, but they begin to talk about their situation with Persia. They say, we are slaves this day. We are slaves. This is verse 36. So they're talking about how they're still under the rule of a king. Rich yield going to kings who you've set over us because of our sins. Talking about them going into Babylon, now being under the king of Persia, having to get permission to rebuild. And then they're saying, we're in great distress. This is the final lament. We're and subject just, to these kings and we're in distress. And just acknowledging that they need God, you know? That's one of the things I take away from them saying that they're in great distress. They're asking God to basically, I don't know if it's accept, but basically find favor with them in making this new commitment, which they're going to do in verse, in verse 38. Right, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So in the previous episode with Le chapters 7 and 8, we talked about 
covenantal renewal as Ezra read the law. Now they're putting this down into an agreement of being firm in faithfulness to this covenant. And actually, as we're going to see as the book unfolds, they're not entirely faithful, but they do right here make a firm promise to be faithful to the covenant. And that's kind of how the chapter concludes. And we're going to keep seeing this Reformation go on into the end of Nehemiah. We are. We are. And I think that's it for this episode. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the discussion and uh, tune back in on Thursday for our next episode, which we have sort of a surprise for. So I hope you guys are looking forward to that. Yeah, we hope you're enjoying Radically Normal. Send us feedback, send us questions, and we will talk to you guys soon.